President Biden meets with the president of Ukraine in a surprise visit to Kyiv nearly one year since Russia began its invasion. It's Monday, February 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, President Biden pledges continued U.S. support during his visit to Ukraine. The Americans stand with you and the world stands with you. Kyiv has captured a part of my heart, I must say. Also, 2024 presidential hopefuls are already visiting Iowa, but the race looks different this time around. And this hour. Are the people watching, like, worried about this? Are they going to bring a gun and try and shoot down the balloon? Scientists who use balloons for research are worried Americans might get the wrong idea about the equipment they use. In sports, the Celtics' Jason Tatum wins MVP honors at the NBA All-Star Game. Clouds give way to sun today in the 50s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden made an unannounced trip to Kyiv today to mark the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports he met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at his official residence in Kyiv. Biden was scheduled to leave tonight for Poland, but left early and visited the war-besieged Ukraine to meet Zelensky. Biden recalled when the two spoke last year in the first days of the Russian invasion. You told me that you could hear the explosions in the background. I'll never forget that. And the world was about to change. He said many people didn't know whether Kyiv would stand, whether Ukraine would continue to exist. But he said they learned of the courage and resilience of the Ukrainian people. One year later, Kyiv stands and Ukraine stands. Biden has announced a half billion dollars of additional assistance to Ukraine. Franco. Ordonez, NPR News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Turkey, where he pledged an additional $100 million in humanitarian aid to Turkey and Syria. More than 44,000 people died in earthquakes there two weeks ago. NPR's Emma Bowman has more. Blinken announced the new aid after surveying the destruction during a helicopter tour over Turkey's Hatay province. The relief package includes basic shelter and health needs, including blankets, tents, clothing, medical supplies, and clean water. The most important thing right now is to get assistance to people who need it, to get them through the winter, and to get them back on their feet. This brings the total USAID pledge for the two countries to $185 million. The secretary also said the search and rescue efforts are coming to an end while recovery continues. Emma Bowman, NPR News. Military leaders in South Korea say North Korea launched another two ballistic missiles off its east coast today. This follows Saturday's launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile into the sea off the coast of Japan. Also today, Pyongyang fired two rounds of rocket artillery that the North claims can carry tactical nuclear weapons. North Korean officials say the tests are in response to joint air drills by the U.S. and South Korea this weekend. A suspect is in custody after a shooting at a Mardi Gras parade in New Orleans last night. Officials say one person was killed and four people were wounded, including a child. Hans Gonthier is with the city police department. He says the motive is unknown. We don't know what happened prior to that, but we did hear gunshots and officers responded, as well as the other agencies, very quickly. And we're able to find uh, two weapons on scene and also apprehend what we believe to be a shooter. He said police had wanted the Mardi Gras to be safe and will continue to work towards that end. This is NPR News. 
Delegates from around the world are scheduled to meet at the United Nations today to discuss a global oceans treaty to help protect the world's marine biodiversity. Almost two-thirds of the world's oceans are outside national boundaries. The goal is to agree on a plan to protect areas on the high seas. China's top diplomat is expected in Moscow today as China and Russia move to strengthen ties after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. NPR's Emily Fang has more. China's Wang Yi headed to Russia after attending a European security conference in Germany. On the sidelines of that conference, he met with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, but his far splashier engagement will be in Russia. Last year, just weeks before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China's Xi Jinping and Russia's Vladimir Putin signed a, quote, no-limits partnership. Chinese foreign ministry officials have said Xi was not aware of Putin's plans at the time. Since the Russian invasion, however, China has not shied away from Russia. Wang has said repeatedly, however, that China does not support the use of nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons in the conflict. China has also stepped up its purchases of Russian oil and gas, and in return, Russia has increased its use of the Chinese currency, the renminbi. Emily Fang, NPR News. Thousands of people lined up at a Tokyo Zoo yesterday to say goodbye to Xiong Xiong, a giant panda who's making her final appearance before returning to China. Although she was born at the zoo, her parents were unloaned from China, so she must be returned to that country. I'm Nora Rahm. NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Today is the President's Day holiday, which means a day off of work for a lot of people. It also means the start to school vacation week for a lot of students. Because of the holiday, the T will run its subways and buses on a Saturday schedule. The commuter rail and ferries will run on weekend schedules. Government offices are closed and parking meters are free nearly everywhere. Massachusetts has a special connection to some of the 45 men who have served as president. WBUR's Fausto Menard explains. Did you know four U.S. presidents were born in the state? All of them in Norfolk County. John Adams and John Quincy Adams were born in, you guessed it, Quincy. And John F. Kennedy was born in Brookline. Milton was George Herbert Walker Bush's birthplace. And let's not forget about Calvin Coolidge. He wasn't born here, but he was governor, state senator, and mayor of Northampton where he retired. George Washington also gets an honorable mention. The father of his country lived in Cambridge while commanding the Continental Army during the Siege of Boston at the start of the Revolution. 490.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The T has become so slow that it would be faster to run than take the train in certain areas. Data obtained by the Boston Globe shows that there are 70 slow zones on the T. The number of speed restrictions on the orange line have more than doubled compared to last August. Over a dozen slow zones across the line have been in place for more than a year. A T spokesperson says the agency is working on finding permanent fixes to those slow zones. A venue in Worcester is asking patrons to literally take a seat. The DCU Center says it will install more than 12,000 new seats over the summer. The Telegram and Gazette reports the arena will give fans an opportunity to take home the old chairs for free. The new seats will be in the colors of the Worcester Railers, which is the city's minor league hockey team. It's 7.07.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, proud to support Boston Medical Center and their Supporting Our Families Through Addiction and Recovery program, committed to helping families enhance their children's development and providing support for recovery with access to specialty care and social services. Learn more at bmc.org. The Celtics' Jason Tatum won the MVP award at last night's NBA All-Star Game. He scored 55 points for Team Giannis in its win over Team LeBron. The final was 184 to 175. The Bruins have a matinee at the Garden today against the Ottawa Senators. Clouds will give way to sun today. It'll get to the mid 50s, partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be in the low 30s. A cloudy start tomorrow, then a rainy afternoon. It'll be near 40. We could get a wintry mix Wednesday into Thursday. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 7:08. WBUR supporters include Better Help committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And President Biden just left Kyiv, Ukraine, following a surprise visit. Biden walked in the Capitol with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky and held a joint press conference. It was an expression of solidarity as the country enters its second year at war with Russia. This is the largest land war in Europe in three quarters of a century. And you're succeeding against all and every expectation except your own. Now, as Biden expressed this solidarity and pledged more aid to Ukraine, the war drags on. And in the U.S., sentiment appears to be shifting. Polls show a growing number of Americans feel the U.S. is spending too much money on Ukraine. It's a country that has a history of struggling with corruption, and that's leading to calls for more scrutiny. Here to talk about this is White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Hi, Franco. Hey, Leila. So, Franco, what are the goals of this Biden trip now in the week that marks the Russia war in Ukraine going into a second year? Well, the president said that he wanted to leave no doubt about U.S. support for Ukraine. But as you know, the fact is there are some growing doubts. So part of this trip, and it's a big trip, is about making a case to Americans back home that it's not just about Ukraine, that it's also important to the United States that Russia be stopped. Mm-hmm. But You know, some Americans, particularly Republicans, think the U.S. is spending too much money. For example, Congressman Thomas Massey, he sees this as a target in budget talks. What wouldn't I cut? I mean, but I would start with the money to Ukraine. You know, Massey is a more extreme example. He's always opposed the aid. But we've also seen Speaker Kevin McCarthy say there can't be a blank check for the war. And that sounds so different than a year ago when people expressed such solidarity almost unanimously. Are Ukrainians worried that at some point they get no check? I mean, you've been to Ukraine twice since the invasion started. Are they worried about the aid drying up and what that could mean for their fight? They're very afraid. I mean, I repeatedly heard from regular citizens as well as military officials that the money and weapons were critical. So many of my interviews ended with thank you for the help, thank you for the weapons, thank you for the HIMARS, which are, of course, those rocket launchers that have proven so critical to shifting the direction of the war. And it's something in the field that our, that our colleagues are, have heard as well. <gasps> what was that? Those are... Yeah. That was NPR producer Katerina Malfieva and correspondent Frank Langfit watching a rocket launched by a HIMAR. 
A Ukrainian soldier nicknamed Fox walks over and explains how important the HIMARS have been. It's working. It's destroyed completely uh, Russian weapon, weapons. and uh, The HIMARS are part of more than $110 billion in aid that Congress has approved just in the last year. But that speed has raised some concerns. Because when you spend that much money that fast, there's bound to be problems. There's bound to be leakage. That's John Sopko, the Special Inspector General, who's reported on failure after failure with aid for Afghanistan. What he's learned is that a country can only absorb so much before things start to go missing. Think of it like this. You take a sponge, you put it on your kitchen counter, and you fill it with water. Drip, drip, drip. It holds the water, it holds the water, and then all of a sudden it reaches a certain point, and then all the water starts spreading out from that sponge. U.S. officials say they're aware of this risk, and they're doing the oversight that's needed. Jessica Lewis is an assistant secretary at the State Department. She says so far there's been no evidence of wide-scale problems. And they're taking steps to prevent Russia or someone else from getting their hands on U.S. weapons. We should all be concerned about the possibility of, you know, a weapon ending up in the wrong hands outside of Ukraine, right? Like, that is why we have to put all of these things in place. She says U.S. inspectors are spending time in Ukraine, and defense staff has been increased at the embassy in Kiev. And there's a lot of oversight happening behind the scenes. Dozens of reviews are underway. One concern is that U.S. troops are not allowed in the country and can't fully monitor the weapons. Lewis says they're adapting the system so they know what's going in and what's going out. That is our responsibility to our own national security. It's our responsibility to our war fighters, And it's our responsibility to the American public to make sure when we transfer a weapon, we are doing so responsibly. But John Sopko says oversight efforts are not coordinated enough. And he worries that the U.S. government is failing to learn its lesson by waiting too long to set up a dedicated team solely focused on oversight in Ukraine. That's something that happened in Afghanistan. When we came in there to do an audit, I felt like the uh, TV uh, detective Columbo. You know, you showed up and all you had was, a, if you were lucky, was a chalk outline of the body. One of the things that Sopko is concerned about is the economic aid. It's overseen by the World Bank. The U.S. is giving about $50 billion to help prop up the Kiev government, money that is helping pay the salaries of officials, police officers, and teachers. And he says that comes with risks. Now, that was one of the biggest concerns we had in in Afghanistan, because the salaries we were paying weren't going to the the right people or weren't going to people at all. So we had ghost civil servants, ghost people in the military, ghost uh, uh, teachers, whatever. Talking about corruption in Ukraine is kind of taboo these days. Those who raise concerns have been accused of spreading Russian propaganda. But just months before the war started, Biden himself was complaining about corruption, saying that's why Ukraine wasn't getting closer to joining the NATO alliance. The fact is they still have to clean up corruption. The fact is they have to meet other criteria to get into the action plan. And so it's, you know, schools out on that question. The administration has avoided public criticism of Ukraine since Russia invaded, but it has quietly continued to press for change. And U.S. officials say President Volodymyr Zelensky is taking on the problem. Good health to you, fellow Ukrainians. Zelensky talked about the issue a few weeks ago when several top officials were fired for corruption. I want people to understand we will never return to how things were before, to the lifestyles that bureaucrats have gotten used to, to the old way of chasing power. 
The Biden administration says that it's not aware of USAID being involved in the scandal. Okay, Franco, is does this mean this is going to become a big partisan domestic political fight now? Well, that's a concern. I've had a conversations with House aides on the Republican side. They say leaders want regular updates on oversight. And look, it's in Biden's interest to work with these Republicans. A big scandal could blow up public support and become an election issue in 2024. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thank you, Franco. Thanks, Layla. The pace is somewhat slower than in past election cycles, but presidential hopefuls are starting to make their trips to Iowa. Republicans will still begin their 2024 primary cycle in the state that has kicked things off for the last half century. Here's Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters. Over 50 protesters make their way to the front of Pizza Ranch, a local chain restaurant in Cedar Rapids holding signs in support of LGBTQ youth. They're gathering because former Vice President Mike Pence is here, speaking in support of parents who have sued a local school district over its gender-affirming policies. Amy Wickendall is a nearby city council member and among the protesters. Is this really what the Republican Party stands for? Is this all the Republican Party stands for? Because that's what it seems like these days. All the Republican politicians just try to beat up on trans kids to get to be divisive and get their votes for their base. And it's, it's absolutely disgusting. Pence has not declared that he's running for president, but it's commonplace for politicians to start showing up in Iowa well ahead of it being official. The Iowa caucuses are famously the first in the nation to test primary candidates, and that's still true for Republicans. Former President Donald Trump's announcement last year that he's making another run seemed to have an early chilling effect on the race. But politicians like Pence are flying out here to craft their stump speeches and get in front of potential voters. We are going to defend parents' rights and the children of Iowa and America. Earlier this month, the DNC voted to remove Iowa from the Democrats' early window of primary states. That means the state will only be first in the nation for Republicans this cycle. That's something Iowa Congresswoman Ashley Hinson highlighted when she introduced Pence to the small crowd at the restaurant. It's very clear that the Democrats think that Iowa is flyover country. They don't want to hear from Iowans and they don't want their candidates to have to answer Iowans' tough questions. Republicans will be taking those questions in a state that has marched to the right over the last decade. Voters here chose Barack Obama twice and then turned around and backed Trump in the next two general elections. Democrats lost even more ground in the midterm. Iowa native and failed Arizona governor candidate Carrie Lake was here a few weekends ago and drew hundreds of people, including Margaret Sidoris, who drove an hour to see Lake speak. She says she likes former President Trump, but... I'd like him to support somebody. I think there's just too much drama there. John Whipple was also at this rally in suburban Des Moines. He likes Trump and would like to see Florida Governor Ron DeSantis get into the race. I think they would both do a good job. And it's just some people seem to, even though they support Trump, they just are kind of thinking maybe it's time to move on. Even former Iowa Governor Terry Branstad was there. He's not picking favorites in the primary, even though he was Trump's ambassador to China. I want them all to feel welcome. And I want to do my part to encourage him to come early and often to Iowa, ideally go to every county, and uh, let the Iowa voters decide who they think 
is the best and strongest candidate. Meanwhile, back at the pizza ranch, Mike Pence works the crowd, then takes questions from the press. He's asked to comment on former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who recently announced her bid for the presidency. Ambassador Nikki Haley did a great job in our administration, and uh, uh, she may have more company soon uh, in the race for president. And I promise folks here in Iowa and all of you, I'll keep you posted. How do you keep up this Haley is in Iowa this week. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott will be here, too. He hasn't said he's running, but this is Iowa, and Republicans are sticking with tradition. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we hear from one of the hundreds of dissidents who have been exiled from Nicaragua and stripped of their citizenship. It's 720. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston... Let's go to the movies with a collection of our favorite conversations on films made in or about Boston. We trace a notorious tradition of Boston crime dramas from the friends of Eddie Coyle to The Departed. Grab your popcorn. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly cloudy today with a high near 58. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low around 32. Early tomorrow morning, we may see some snow that'll probably convert to rain. We'll have a high near 42. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft, used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega in recent days has stripped more than 300 of his political opponents of their citizenship. Felix Maridiaga is one of them. For years, he worked on reintegration efforts of Nicaraguan guerrillas and has served as the country's defense minister. Now, he's one of more than 200 individuals who've been exiled to the U.S. Maradiaga has been out of the government since Ortega came back into power in 2007, but his civil society work continued until a few years ago when the opposition was gaining momentum. A massive uh, civic protest in 2018. I was part of, of, of that protest. Eventually, in 2021, the uh, movement 
the uh, Blue and White National Unity Movement, decided that I should represent that movement in a broad coalition. So I tried to run for president. And Ortega put us all, all the candidates in the primary election in prison. Imprisoned together, cut off from the world, Maradiaga and other religious, civil society, and political leaders had no idea what was ahead. At the beginning, we were about 10 to 11 people in prison, and most of us high-profile politicians. But then every journalist who, who tried to speak on radio, on TV, every human rights activist were also put into prison. Towards the end of our trial, there were about 30 to 40 people in prison just because of speaking on our behalf relatives of some of the prisoners who, who tried to advocate for their freedom were placed to arrest. An arrest warrant was placed against my wife and also against Victoria Cárdenas, the wife of Sebastián Chamorro. So they had to, to flee the country. How did you hold it together? Well, uh, uh, we had different emotional phases of all this very long journey. In the first uh, three months, I personally lost 60 pounds. I was in the dark 24-7 had no reading or writing materials, not even a Bible. We were not even allowed to make a single phone call during that time. However, towards the month number 19, I was there for 20 months. They started to feel us very well. They allowed the families to see us more frequently. And prison conditions changed substantially. And we knew that something was going to, to happen. But we never imagined that one day, uh, guards will suddenly come to our cell in the middle of the night, ask us to dress, put us in a bus that with the windows completely uh, shut down and, and covered so we could not see outside. We were in handcuffs looking down and suddenly we arrived at the airport and the guard says you have to sign this one-liner that said I, in this case Felix Maradiaga, voluntarily leave the country to the United States. And we walked to the tarmac of the airport and there is this team of American diplomats from the State Department and they said you are free now. I, I cannot describe how mm. emotional it, it, it is, and I've seen that in movies, and you know we never imagined as a Nicaraguan that a foreign government would come and take us to, to a free land. So we uh, boarded the plane, we remained quiet for a few minutes, and then we just sang the national anthem, started to pray, and we heard this voice of this American diplomat saying, we're flying to Washington, D.C., and it's very hard to describe this uh, reflection with something that for me is very powerful. Uh, I myself was a political refugee when I was a child. I, I crossed the border with Mexico, fleeing from the civil wars of Nicaragua. I was 12 at the time and spent time at, at a refugee camp in Texas. A couple of years later, when democracy was reestablished in Nicaragua, I went back to Nicaragua with the dream of establishing a, a life in the country that I love. And years later, I'm back in the U.S. once again as a refugee for trying to run for president and trying to establish a country in which our children would not uh, have to go through what I went through when I was a child. And now I'm no longer, according to the Nicaragua regime, not allowed to run for office, but stripped from my Nicaragua nationality. Now, who told you that the president had stripped your citizenship from you? I know you signed a paper, but uh, who told you that that was going to happen to you and to the 221 other people exiled with you? Daniel Ortega himself, as we were flying, he gave a press conference during a cabinet meeting. And in something that can only be described as Orwellian, the Nicaraguan Congress, which is fully controlled by Daniel Ortega, 
reform the Nicaraguan constitution to restrict our from our nationality to 122 people in the plane and 94 other members of the Nicaraguan political opposition, including the expropriation uh, of all our assets. The government has taken all, all our property. You've made uh, several visits to Washington, D.C. in the past um, in, in various capacities as a government official, a researcher. What was this visit like for you when when you were released and, and, and made it to Washington, D.C.? Uh, two points. First, the Ortega of today has nothing to do with the Ortega of the 1980s. And um, some people in Washington, not only in Washington, in other capitals of the world, had some idealistic ideas of the Sandinistas of the 1980s. So it was hard to explain that, that this was a new type of dictator, more sophisticated, someone that tried to pretend to be democratic, that pretended to hold elections, but was controlling all aspects of, of, of Nicaraguan government, taking full control of, of the media, taking full control of the justice system, but going directly to your to your question, in this last trip, it is clear that Ortega is no longer seen as a local problem. Ortega is perceived as, in fact, he is, as part of a global ecosystem of dictatorship, working very closely with Russia, working with China, and with other dictatorial regimes such as Cuba and Venezuela. Ortega is a problem for the Western Hemisphere, not only for Central America. And, and I think that that response that we saw through our evacuation is part of, of the fact that Ortega is no longer outside of the radar. He is in the, the eyes of the world for the wrong reasons. You know, I, I would like to have my government in the spotlight for other reasons and not for the fact that, that we have the most extreme dictatorship in, in the Americas at this point. That is Felix Maradiaga, Nicaraguan president. Daniel Ortega sent him to prison for treason for 611 days because he wanted to run for president. Felix, thank you very much for your story. Thank you for your time. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, researchers who use balloons to collect data over the U.S. are now worried that people will mistake them for aerial objects from China. And a preview of the elections this week in Nigeria, where kidnappings for ransom have become a key issue. It's 7.30. Follow the news all day with WBUR. We're at 90.9 on the radio, WBUR.org online, and on the WBUR mobile app on your phone. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden has left Kiev after a surprise visit to Ukraine this morning and a meeting with the country's president. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kiev the visit comes days before the anniversary of Russia's invasion into Ukraine. President Biden stood side by side with President Volodymyr Zelensky and promised hundreds of millions of dollars more in military aid to Ukraine. The two men also talked about long-range weapons for
for Ukraine to defend itself against Russian aggression. The visit was symbolic, Biden recalled speaking to Zelensky almost a year ago when the Russian invasion started and Zelensky could hear explosions outside his door. Biden said Kyiv and Ukraine have defied everyone's expectations and represent the fight for democracy. Joanna Kakis has NPR News, Kyiv. North Korea fired two short-range ballistic missiles in its second weapons test in three days. Today's firings drew quick condemnation from its rivals and prompted Tokyo to request an emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council. Near Los Angeles, Sheriff's Department detectives are investigating the death of Bishop David O'Connell as a homicide. O'Connell was found suffering from a gunshot wound in Hacienda Heights about 20 miles east of downtown L.A., O'Connell was a priest and later a bishop in the city for 45 years. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. New England's regional power grid operator says the amount of residential solar panels in the region is growing. As Mara Hoplamazian reports, that's changing the way it plans to meet the demand for electricity. Matt Cakley is with ISO New England, the organization that runs New England's regional electricity grid. He says as long as there's been electricity, humans have used more of it in the middle of the day. But things are changing. As more and more people have put solar panels on their roofs or of their homes or their businesses, is that they're getting that electricity from those solar panels rather than the, the bulk power system. That means on mild, sunny days, the demand on the regional power system is lower in the middle of the day than it is in the middle of the night. Those are called duck curve days because the demand curve looks like a duck. And the grid operators saw more of those in 2022 than in every other year combined. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. Worcester police officers will start wearing body cameras next week. 300 officers will use the equipment. The rollout comes after the cameras were tested during a pilot program in 2019. The department says the technology will help with safety and accountability. The city of Quincy is holding its annual President's Day Winterfest today. There will be music, food, shows with animals, and ice sculptures. John McDonald is Quincy's special events coordinator. He says Winterfest is part of a strategy of holding more events year-round to bring people into the city. We celebrate Flag Day, which we're, I think we're the only um, city in the country that still has a major celebration for Flag Day. And then we do up Christmas right. So when we've talked about President's Day, it just seemed to match as one of these things that we should be doing in our community. Winterfest takes place this afternoon from 2 to 7 at the Hancock Adams Common. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rose Art Museum with Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love. An exploration of identity and legacy. Tickets at brandeis.edu slash rose. The Celtics' Jason Tatum scored an all-star game record 55 points last night. His team Giannis beat Team LeBron 184 to 175. Jalen Brown also scored 35 points in the game. In women's hockey, the Boston Pride beat the Montreal Force yesterday 2-1. The Bruins are back on the ice this afternoon as they host the Ottawa Senators. More clouds than sun today, but relatively warm will have a high in the upper 50s. Tonight, still partly overcast and temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow, we may see snow before about 9 a.m. Then that'll turn to rain. We'll have a high right around 40. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University. 
whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. The three objects shot down over the U.S. and Canada earlier this month remain a source of intrigue in Washington, although President Biden has ruled out espionage. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. Scientists use balloons for a lot of reasons, and as NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, they're worried that people are getting the wrong idea. Angela Desjardins is a physicist at Montana State University in Bozeman, west of where the Chinese balloon was first spotted by the public. It was over um, Billings, which is a couple hours east of here. So no, I didn't actually see it. But she's seen plenty of others. Since 2001, students at Montana State University have been launching balloons to the upper edge of the atmosphere. Up at that high, it's almost like the vacuum of space. It's cold. So you can test a lot of things and give, you know, budding engineers and scientists the experience. Of what it's like to build equipment for satellites and spacecraft. The balloons launched by Desjardins students are typically a lot smaller than the one flown by China, but she doesn't think that matters. Especially once they shot down the Chinese balloon, we pretty quickly realized that this was going to have an impact on our community. Student balloon launches have, in the past, been peaceful, festive affairs. Student groups would get together, and a lot of times they would invite other groups to come watch a balloon being launched. But now it's a little bit more of a sense of, oh, are the people watching, like, worried about this? Are they going to bring a gun and try and shoot down the balloon? She says that when her students launch balloons later this year, she expects to do a lot more outreach to locals and law enforcement to try and reassure them that the balloons are harmless. Education isn't the only thing balloons are used for. Gregory Guzik is a professor at Louisiana State University. He says scientists frequently fly experiments on balloons to study things like the sun, cosmic rays from deep space. Environmental studies as well as climate change and other kinds of pollution. So it really covers a broad, broad range of activities. Guzik works with large, high-altitude balloons that from a distance look a lot like the Chinese balloon. He's not too worried about getting shot down. They carry radio beacons that let everyone know they're not a threat. All of our balloons have transponders. We know where they are. But Guzik says he is worried that the Chinese balloon may make it more difficult for other balloons to fly. For example, his balloons usually launch from a small town in New Mexico near a sensitive government facility. While we don't try, we do brush up against the White Sands Missile Test Range there. In the past, it hasn't been a big deal if a balloon drifts near. They notify White Sands and the balloon bobs by at an altitude far above airplanes and other stuff. But Guzik worries that fears about spying could change the rules, making it harder for peaceful balloons to fly. He says right now the conversation is too focused on the military threat from balloons. This other side of the story, uh, the useful practical ballooning that helps students, helps technology and our better understanding of the universe really needs to get out there. 
Remember, he says, if you look up and see a balloon floating by, the chances are it's doing something good for the world. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Lack of security is a top concern for voters deciding Nigeria's political future this week. Parts of Africa's most populous country are practically ungovernable. And kidnapping for ransom is now a regular occurrence. It's made cross-country travel dangerous and reshaped life for millions. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports. Good morning, distinguished ladies and gentlemen. A few years ago, boarding a train in Nigeria felt ordinary. Now, it feels like a risk. Good morning. morning. Can I have a train to Kaduna? Yeah, economy. Economy. At Abuja rail station, passengers stream into the station hall to catch a train to the northern city of Kaduna. When the train line opened seven years ago, there was optimism and excitement at the new rail connections being built around the country. But now that's changed. On the train, there are at least two officers armed with AK-47s who stand at each end of every carriage, while others patrol the corridors. Most of the seats are empty and have been since the last attack almost a year ago. That very day, I I can remember, we departed Abuja by 6 p.m. as usual. 33-year-old Kende Akinyemi is an engineer for the Nigerian Railway Corporation and was on the train that night when the gunmen struck. When we were about to reach Duse, I just had, like, going short. A bomb went off on the track, derailing the train. A dozen terrorists stormed on board and killed nine people. Kainde and two others hid in a train toilet, praying but not making a sound. They are kidnapping people, killing, shooting. They are telling the passengers, stand up, let's go. At least 63 people were kidnapped that day and held for ransom. The attack was carried out by two armed groups, including an affiliate of Boko Haram, the terrorist group notorious for kidnapping hundreds of schoolgirls in Chibok back in 2014. Over the course of six months, the terrorists would release videos like this. Eventually, they were all released, with some forced to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in ransom. The kidnapping thing usually progresses where initially it's niche. Tunde Leia is a political and security analyst based in Lagos. As time goes on, it becomes proliferated, democratized, and anybody that is able to just organize a bunch of boys is willing to take the risk. Leia says that as the economy has suffered, kidnaps for ransom have become a prolific industry. From the early days of kidnapping foreigners for grievances and then money in the oil-rich Niger Delta, to groups like Boko Haram kidnapping to support their ideology. There are areas in the country, for example, where people are farmers, but they've not planted for 10 years. All the young guys that should have learned farming skills in those 10 years have not. The only skills they have right now is how to fight. Passengers on the Abuja to Kaduna line chose to take the train that day because they felt it was the safest bet. Safer than a flight because just two days before, gunmen attacked Kaduna airport. And safer than the road because the Abuja to Kaduna highway is notorious for kidnappings. The Abuja Kaduna line finally reopened in December, after nine months. Authorities reassured that the journey had been secured, but Kainde wasn't convinced it was safe enough to return to his old job on the Abuja Kaduna train line. And since that day, he's had many sleepless nights. If the night comes, if I lie down on the bed, my mind will be at 
the incident. So till daybreak, my mind is replaying the incident because I'm scared. And the new train line that the government held as a mark of progress has now become a symbol of Nigeria's vulnerability. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Abuja. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, experts have calculated the date that the U.S. will reach its debt limit. And that date is the deadline for Congress to come up with a solution if it wants the government to keep paying its bills. Mostly overcast today in the mid to upper 50s, still overcast tonight in the low 30s. Snow early tomorrow morning, maybe, then rain. It'll be in the low 40s, partly sunny and low 40s on Wednesday. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Now in business news, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts says it will keep covering telehealth sessions for the same rate as primary care visits. The state's largest health insurer says it made the decision partly over concerns of workforce shortages across the healthcare industry. Blue Cross Blue Shield tells the Boston Globe keeping this coverage won't raise overall costs for customers. The Kowloon restaurant in Sagas is now serving up limited edition sneakers. The restaurant on Route 1 says it's making 100 pairs of hand-painted Kowloon Nike sneakers. The shoes are already available for pre-order and cost just over $500. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. We know the U.S. is running out of money to pay its bills. What we don't know is when that will happen, or in other words, what the deadline is for Congress to come up with a solution on the debt limit. Nick Fountain from our Planet Money podcast hung out with some policy experts who are trying to figure out that exact detail. The wonks are at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and they're led by Shia Kabis, who doesn't really like to brag about his expertise. Being the world expert on the debt limit is a little like being the world's expert on termites. Nobody really (laughs) wants to see you around or hear from you. He's been at it for a while, since 2011, a debt ceiling fight with many parallels to today's. Back then, now chair of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, was working with Akabis. And Akabis says Powell realized that Republicans didn't trust the information that the Treasury Department was giving out about the debt ceiling, especially this detail, when Treasury could run out of money. So right or wrong, they were viewed as potentially not an objective source as to the fundamentals of the debt limit and what they were asking Congress to do. Akabis and Powell thought maybe we could be the objective source. It's worth a shot. 
The first piece of information they needed to audit was the date the U.S. could run out of money to pay its obligations, what they called the X date. Acabas and Powell poured over months of Treasury statements to try to figure out the cash flows of the U.S. government. And they calculated that the U.S. could be out of money as soon as August 2nd, 35 days away. Then they headed to Capitol Hill to try to answer any questions lawmakers had. Questions like, why do we have to act? Couldn't we do this? Or couldn't we do that? Or couldn't we just, you know, go over the cliff and see what happens? And they would tell lawmakers. The truth is, nobody knows exactly what's going to happen when we go off that cliff. Beyond the X date is a grave unknown. We've never been there before in the modern history of our country. And we just don't know what some of the reactions to that action would be. But they'd say the consequences could be dire. The market for U.S. debt is the foundation for basically all other financial markets. If a debt ceiling impasse lasted for more than a few days, think drops in financial markets, increases to borrowing costs, downgrades to the U.S. credit rating. And all for what? An extra few days of negotiation? Not worth it. The peak of their lobbying efforts came just two weeks before that year's X date. Powell was invited to a closed-door meeting of the entire Republican caucus. Acabas wasn't, but he heard some stories. I was told there was some yelling. I was told there may have been some expletives. (laughs) He says it was in that room that Republicans got on board with a deal they'd eventually negotiate with the White House. When was the deal struck? Do you remember how close to the, the that August 2nd X date? I believe the deal passed on August 2nd. So Ah! it was a last minute (laughs) deal. (laughs) Congress really only tends to act when they have their backs up against a wall. Seriously? I thought journalists liked deadlines, but wow. Congress really likes deadlines. It was true in 2011, and it'll likely be true this year. Acabas and his team will come out with their forecast of this year's X date later this week. Nick Fountain, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Carnival in many Brazilian cities is back at full force after the pandemic. Other cities like Sao Paulo have canceled events because of heavy rain that has caused flooding and landslides. And in 20 minutes, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Turkey to speak with NATO leaders and assess recovery efforts from the recent earthquake. It's 7.50. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Before he was Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky was a comedic actor and entertainment mogul. Now he's a global symbol of democracy. People really recognize themselves in him, identify themselves with him or he identifies himself with the people. How Ukraine's president transformed himself in the midst of a major war. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. 
We're keeping an eye out for any developments on former President Jimmy Carter. His foundation says the 98-year-old entered hospice care this weekend. We're also watching for reaction to President Biden's surprise trip to Kiev. He visited the Ukrainian capital this morning, nearly one year since the start of Russia's invasion. Keep it here with 90.9 WBUR and get the latest local news all day at WBUR.org. Upper 50s today under mostly overcast skies, low 30s tonight and still partly cloudy. We may see some snow early tomorrow morning. By mid-morning, that should turn to rain. It'll be in the low 40s. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston at 751. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldid. And I'm Amy Martinez. And Keiichi Okoro Carroll occupies a rare space in the TV industry. She's a black woman who is a showrunner for three different network television shows. NPR TV critic Eric Deggan spent time with her in Los Angeles to find out how she went from being an economist at the Federal Reserve to overseeing series like the CW's All-American. When you walk into Nkeche Okoro Carroll's office, there's a wall above her computer where a framed message hangs. Take a deep breath and remember who the bleep you are. I can't say the actual word on the radio. I was having a very, very rough day. I saw it on Twitter and I'd posted, oh my gosh, this is what I need in my office. And literally one of my actors ran out got one printed, framed and everything, and within an hour was like, here. It makes sense because so much of Carol's success seems rooted in who she is, a child of Nigerian immigrants who fell in love with American TV shows like Beverly Hills 90210 and General Hospital. Now she's the showrunner, or top creative authority and manager, for three different shows. The CW's All-American, its spinoff All-American Homecoming, and a new fall drama on NBC, Found. On All-American, Tay Diggs plays a high school football coach thinking of leaving California for another job when he's confronted by athlete Spencer James, played by Daniel Ezra. There are other coaches. How many times do I have to tell you, you are not just a coach, you're a father. The only one some of these kids will ever know. Fans know that the story for Diggs' character recently took a poignant turn. Carol says the show depicts many different kinds of Black youth. I just saw a real opportunity to make a show that I would have loved to watch growing up, a show that I'd be proud to sit down and watch with my kids that also just put hope and dreams back in our community. In high school, Carol loved both writing and economics. So while she was earning a master's degree in international economics from New York University, and later while working for the Federal Reserve, she would write and direct plays on the side. I'd be at the trading desk by like 6.37 in the morning, do the trades we were doing that day to stabilize the banking system. And then 6 p.m., I was out the door to whatever black box theater we were putting up whatever play we were putting up. Later, she decided to learn TV, downloading scripts off the internet and working as an extra to watch productions. Then, after the 9-11 attacks, she dedicated herself to becoming a TV writer. 9-11 was a real wake-up call of tomorrow's not promised. You know, there was a significant portion of that day where my family was convinced they would never see me again because I was downtown. We were barricaded under, literally under the Federal Reserve where we keep the gold when the towers started falling. And so, but it was one of those things where it's just like, okay, you're getting a second chance at life. What are you doing with it? Carol moved to Los Angeles where she met writer, show creator, and actress Lena Waithe and writer-producer Erica Johnson. In 2014, they gathered Black women working in TV to network, and the group Black Women Who Brunch was born. 
I think we got the idea because we saw a post on Facebook about a bunch of Black men writers getting together. And we just were like, why don't we do that? That's Lena Waithe, who became the first Black woman to win an Emmy for comedy writing in 2017 for an episode of Netflix's Master of None. The Black Women Who Brunch group began with about 12 people meeting at Carol's house, and it's grown to several dozen women. It really just sort of feels like a sisterhood that we didn't know could exist. These days, Carol is juggling her duties on the All-American series while filming Found, a TV show about a black woman who leads a team focused on finding missing people who are forgotten, often people of color. For Carol, it's all about exploiting the rapid impact of TV. But the thing I love the most about TV is the immediacy of it. If I have something I want to say about the world, I can put it in a script and in six weeks it's on the air. Eric Deggins, NPR News. Rio de Janeiro's world-famous carnival is underway, but in the run-up to the official festivities, locals are already in the swing with a series of free celebrations called blocos, block parties. Most have a theme. NPR's Carrie Kahn takes us to one neighborhood across the bay from Rio where the party was, shall we say, of a mature nature. Okay, it's not what you think. When we say mature, we just mean aged, experienced. Like 85-year-old Odete Fagundas da Cruz. Dressed in bright neon spandex shorts, sensible shoes, and a splash of red lipstick, she says she's here to shake her hips. Maybe not as much as usual. She says she's a little tired. She was out dancing until 2 a.m. last night. The master of ceremonies welcomes the crowd to this year's Bola Branca, loosely translated the white-haired party for those 60 and up. Everyone sings the Blocko song printed on the back of the red and white paper fans. It's not even noon and it's already in the high 80s. I'm jumping, I'm singing, I'm on fire, go the lyrics. 85-year-old Da Cruz says this is just what the community needs now. It feels good to shed the sadness that a lot of people were feeling during the pandemic, she says. Brazil was hit hard by COVID. Nearly 700,000 people died, many elderly. This is the first year the 60 and up block party is back on since 2020. They've added a food drive this year. With every donation of dry goods, Michelle Machado hands out a shirt and condoms. Everyone likes them, he says, even if most of the women tell them they're for a neighbor. 73-year-old Maria Molina doesn't need excuses. People have a lot of sex during carnival, she shouts to me over the loud music. She has six kids, eight grandkids, and two great-grandchildren. She's widowed and says it's hard to find a good partner these days. Most men just use you and lose you, she says. She loves the friendship and dancing she's found in this blocko. This neighborhood in Niterói has the second highest number of senior citizens in all Brazil, says Bloco President Sergio Vranecki. We can't let our age hold us back. 
We may not have young bodies anymore, he says, but we are for sure young in spirit. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Niterói, Brazil. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Mostly cloudy in upper 50s today. Still cloudy tonight in the low 30s. Tomorrow may start with snow, but no accumulation is expected. That'll turn to rain as the day goes on. Temperatures will be in the low 40s. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden has made a surprise visit to Kyiv, underlining U.S. support for Ukraine in a joint press conference with its president. It's Monday, February 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, in Turkey, Secretary of State Antony Blinken announces $100 million more in U.S. aid for earthquake recovery efforts. And... We're losing the dignity and the impartiality of the court and turning into a partisan fight. A fight for control of the Wisconsin Supreme Court may determine the future of abortion rights in the state. Also, former President Jimmy Carter is in hospice care at his Georgia home. We look back at his impact while in the White House and for decades afterward. Plus, Florida Florida's medical boards have voted to ban gender-affirming care for transgender youth. In sports, the Celtics' Jason Tatum is named MVP at the NBA All-Star Game. Mostly cloudy and upper 50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden made an unannounced visit to Kyiv today in advance of the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He said he is reaffirming the U.S. commitment to Ukraine's democracy, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. The president also announced the U.S. will send a half a billion dollars of additional assistance to Ukraine. NPR's Franco Ordonez has more on the visit. The president said that he wanted to leave no doubt about U.S. support for Ukraine. But, as you know, the fact is there are some growing doubts. So part of this trip is about making a case to Americans back home that it's not just about Ukraine, that it's also important to the United States that Russia be stopped. Mm -hmm. But, you know, some Americans, particularly Republicans, think the U.S. is spending too much money. NPR's Franco Ordonez. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Turkey. Yesterday, he viewed earthquake damage by helicopter and promised the U.S. would help Turkey to recover and to rebuild for as long as it takes. Officials now estimate the death toll from the earthquake in Turkey and neighboring Syria exceeds 46,000. More than a million people have lost their homes. Classes are resuming today at Michigan State University, where a shooting last week left three students dead and five hospitalized. Arjun Hawker from member station WKAR reports. Classes at MSU have been suspended since the shooting occurred last Monday. 
The university has been holding community events and offering counseling resources to students and staff. Some students have asked for the return to campus to be delayed so the community has more time to grieve. But MSU Interim Provost Thomas Yeichko says the return to a learning environment will help everyone recover. Coming back together uh, is something that will help us. Um, we're a community that was shaped around uh, the interests of discovery and learning, and it is as a community that we will heal. MSU says two buildings on campus where the shooting occurred will not be used for instruction for the rest of the semester. For NPR News, I'm Arjun Tucker in East Lansing. There's been an outpouring of support for former President Jimmy Carter, who's now receiving hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia. NPR's Giles Snyder reports. At the Maranatha Baptist Church, where former President Carter taught Sunday school for decades, worshipers prayed for the Carter family after his foundation said he has decided to forego additional medical intervention and spend his remaining time at home with his family. Zach Steele is a deacon at the church. He worked closely with Carter over the years. He's the, uh, the bedrock of the character here, and he's taught a lot of us to be better people. President Biden said in a Twitter statement that Carter is admired for his strength and humility. Georgia Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock called Carter a man of great faith. And Georgia Republican Congressman Rich McCormick thanked Carter for his service to the state and country. Trial Snyder, NPR News. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is warning that the Supreme Court may try to overturn what it once deemed constitutional rights. Justice Clarence Thomas made comments in his agreement to overturn Roe v. Wade. He said the court should look at other cases protecting same-sex marriage and con- contraception. Presley tells WCVB's on the record she believes it's not like un- it's not unlikely that they're coming for those protections next. The Supreme Court has been in an unprecedented way legislating from the bench. It is far right. It is extreme. It is imbalanced. It has overturned the majority uh, will of the people on everything from voting rights to housing rights to um, reproductive rights and abortion justice and bodily autonomy. She wants lawmakers to step in and protect those rights with laws codifying them. If you're looking to get somewhere fast, it may make more sense to lace up some running shoes than take the T. Data obtained by the Boston Globe shows that more than a dozen slow zones on the line have been in place for over a year. In some of them, trains go as slow as three miles an hour. There are 70 speed restrictions overall. A T spokesperson says the agency is working on getting rid of the slowdowns. Today is President's Day. Because of the holiday, the T is running subways and buses on a Saturday schedule. The commuter rail and ferry are on a weekend schedule. This is also the start to school vacation week for a lot of families. The Trustees of Reservations is hosting a number of outside events throughout the Commonwealth for the week. Kristen Swanberg directs education programs for the nonprofit. For the first time, we are offering this Winterfest event at Crane Beach. It's a family event. We're having um, live music. There'll be some fire pits. There's going to be some outdoor games, and they'll have food trucks. That event is scheduled for Friday. Swanberg says many of the week's programs are free but require registration online. The USS Constitution will mark President's Day with a 21-gun salute in Boston Harbor. Old Ironsides is the world's oldest commissioned warship. It was named by the nation's first president, George Washington. The 21-gun salute happens at noon, and the ship will also be open for tours throughout the day. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. 
warm up with family fun this season. Interactive art and reading spaces, plus an exhibition inspired by childhood, ICABoston.org. The Celtics' Jason Tatum won MVP honors at last night's NBA All-Star Game. Tatum and Team Giannis beat Team LeBron 184-175. The Bruins will go for their fourth straight win this afternoon as they host the Ottawa Senators. Spring, ta- spring, spring training in Florida has the Red Sox gearing up for the coming baseball season. WBUR's Fausto Menard explains. Today is the first day of full squad workouts for the Sox. Pitchers and catchers began working out at JetBlue Park in Fort Myers last week. The players won't have much time to prepare. They play Northeastern University on Thursday, followed by their first spring training game on Friday against the Atlanta Braves. The Sox hope to improve on last year's 78-84 record, which left them dead last in the American League East. They open the regular season March 30th at Fenway against the Baltimore Orioles. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Fausto Menard. Clouds will give way to sun today. It'll get to the mid-50s. Partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be in the low 30s. A cloudy start tomorrow, then a rainy afternoon. It'll be near 40. We could get a wintry mix Wednesday into Thursday. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. President Joe Biden made an unannounced and audacious visit to Ukraine's capital on Monday to mark almost a year since Russia's invasion. NPR's Joanna Kakissis was with Biden and President Volodymyr Zelensky during that surprise visit, and she's with us on the line now. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Layla. So tell us about this visit. What did President Biden and President Zelensky do? So the two men met the two men met at the presidential palace, which is this beautiful ornate building with chandeliers. Uh, it's a it's a building the public can't get anywhere near to. Mm. Uh, it's under very strict security. The neighborhood neighborhood has been locked down since the beginning of the war. Um, Biden wore a dark blue suit with a blue and yellow tie, the colors of Ukraine. Zelensky wore his signature army army green sweatsuit. Um, but, you know, there was also news. Uh, President Biden announced half a billion dollars in additional aid to Ukraine, and he promised more sanctions on Russia with details to be announced in the coming days. Uh, the visit was largely symbolic. It comes almost a year after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Biden seemed to revel in the fact that Ukraine and Kyiv have defied the odds by surviving and that Ukraine's Western allies have stuck together to help Ukraine. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. As you know, Mr. President, I said to you in the beginning, he's counting on us not sticking together. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now. And Layla, the two men also walked around St. Michael's Cathedral. And while they were inside, an air, ra- an air raid siren rang out. And it's a sign that the city, as calm as it seems most of the time, is still a target in this war. Yeah. What's the significance of the U.S. president showing up in Ukraine now? 
So uh, the the takeaway is like the the biggest thing is a symbolic show of support, as mm -hmm. I mentioned, um, and especially as the year anniversary approaches, uh, the U.S. has made the biggest contribution to Ukraine's ability to fight back against Russia, and by most measures, this seems to have worked. Uh, this time, one year ago, people thought Kiev would like fall in a matter of days, just as I mentioned earlier. Now mm -hmm. it's safe enough for President Biden to visit. Wow. One year later. Kyiv stands, and Ukraine stands, democracy stands, the Americans stand with you, and the world stands with you. And, you know, Leila, lots of foreign visitors have visited, yeah, foreign leaders have visited Ukraine, but Biden had not. And so this is, a, this is a big, you know, very symbolic and a huge deal for Ukraine. Did anyone expect the visit? So the White House kept a very, very tight lid on Biden's visit here. The president traveled with this, just a few, uh, uh, just one reporter and photographer and just a few officials rather than his usual pool of reporters. Uh, but there was clearly something going on this morning. Uh, when I left my house at you know, 7 a.m. to wait for President Biden and President Zelensky, I saw police and police barricades everywhere on nearly every corner. Uh, I was even stopped trying to get a cup of coffee from a kiosk. They're like, what are you doing here? Um, I heard Ukrainians wondering who the heck is in town? Is it some foreign dignitary? Because, you know, they didn't think it was going to be Biden because the White House had said no. Uh, so Zelensky did a, a hint a few days ago that he was going to see his good friend, friend Biden. And as a master communicator, he knew how significant a visit from Biden would be, to, it would look to Ukrainians. This is really the most important visit or the whole history of Ukraine-U.S. relationship in this most difficult period for Ukraine when Ukraine is fighting for her own liberty, for the liberties of the world. So President Biden has now left and he's headed to Poland after this. He gives a big speech in Warsaw tomorrow. NPR's Joanna Kakisis in Kiev. Thank you. You're welcome, Leila. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Turkey this morning to discuss a number of pressing issues. It's the second stop of a three-country trip. Blinken had already planned to go to Turkey before a massive earthquake devastated the country south two weeks ago. Now he's there and the trip is taking on new meaning. But he's still facing some of the old issues in the close but contentious U.S.-Turkey relationship. NPR's Peter Kenyon joins us now from Istanbul. Uh, Peter, what do we know about Blinken's agenda? Well, Blinken arrived in Turkey Sunday after attending the Munich Security Conference. Uh, he visited Injerlik Air Base, uh, being used by the U.S. Air Force and others. He was given a helicopter tour of some of the areas damaged in the February 6th quake. He arrived as Turkey is winding down search and rescue operations in all but two provinces and turning to the much longer job of reconstructing many of the thousands of buildings destroyed by the quake and the powerful aftershocks that followed. Uh, so the visit has taken on a more urgent tone. Uh, Blinken is now visiting an area in mourning for what's now estimated to be at least 46,000 lives lost in Turkey and Syria. And what's the U.S. doing in terms of earthquake relief? Well, Blinken arrived with a pledge of additional aid that the State Department says brings Washington's total commitment to Turkey and Syria to some $185 million. Uh, meanwhile, Turkey's foreign minister says it needs more. It needs additional mobile housing, more tents from NATO, increased air support from its allies to deliver aid to areas hard to get to by road. Uh, the two diplomats met. They held a news conference at which Blinken reiterated Washington's firm support for Turkey despite their differences on some issues. And I know that Blinken was uh, headed there to 
talk uh, about other issues. One of them, NATO expansion. The U.S. wants Sweden and Norway to join, but Turkey, a NATO country, has uh, threatened to block that. Uh, what's the stake there for both countries? Well, that's right. And it's a potentially thorny issue for both sides. Uh, Turkey is the only member state that has yet to affirm that it will ratify expanding the alliance by adding Sweden and Finland. Uh, here's a bit of what Blinken said. The United States greatly values Turkey's contributions as a longstanding and active member of the NATO alliance. And we'll keep working together to strengthen and grow our alliance, including through the accession of Sweden and Finland, which will help deliver even stronger and more capable uh, assets to the alliance. Now, President Erdogan wants the extradition of some 130 people, particularly from Sweden, to face charges of supporting terrorism. Sweden says that's basically impossible. On other issues, Blinken reiterated his concern that China is considering supplying lethal aid to Russia for use in Ukraine. And he talked about Turkey's bid to buy American F-16 fighter jets, though he didn't offer anything conclusive on overcoming opposition from Congress. So uh, safe to say, Peter, that uh, Turkish officials want to press Blinken on earthquake recovery support as a number one priority? Yes, I think that's extremely likely. The death toll is, of course, expected to keep rising as the crews get to more of the thousands of buildings that were very heavily damaged or collapsed entirely in the earthquake and the aftershocks. Uh, thousands of people will be needing more permanent accommodation, uh, and the effort, of course, needs to begin to rebuild or construct thousands of buildings, presumably this time with state-of-the-art earthquake defenses. I mean, critics charge that too often corners were cut in building homes in earthquake-prone areas in the past, and that left a situation where many of the buildings were less able than they should have been to withstand the shock of a quake. That's NPR's Peter Canyon in Istanbul. Peter, thanks. Thank you, eh? Now we turn to Syria and Turkey, where the earth is still quaking with frequent aftershocks since that original earthquake. Many people there sleep in tents, even if their walls are still standing, because they're afraid their homes could collapse. NPR's Daniel Estrin met some of those survivors in southern Turkey. Eight families with eight tents sit in the shadow of apartment buildings in the center of Gaziantep. They're Syrian war refugees who've built their lives here for a decade. Mustafa Kader invites us to peek into his tent. We stay here as seven people, uh, me, my wife, and our, our five children. This is fabric from a carpet. This is from a carpet seller and gave him these, these long strips of of fabric that they've tied together to jerry-rig this tiny tent made of blue tarp and uh, duvet covers and a little furnace in the middle that comes up with a chimney and they've cut a little hole at the top. Turkey says more than 40,000 buildings are at risk of collapse and must be demolished, making Turkey's sudden homelessness crisis even more profound. Qadr's home is still standing but cracked enough to make them worry how it'll hold up. There have been daily aftershocks. I just packed everything uh, yesterday, uh, thinking that we would go back to the house. Uh, I packed all my stuff, and then the children said, I'm scared to go back to the house. So we just unpacked everything, and we're still here. His 10-year-old daughter, Amina, says, I don't like it here. Look at my face. Look at my hands. They're cracked from the winter cold. These families fled Syria's civil war and settled in Turkey. They never imagined they'd have to escape their home again. There's some hostility to Syrian war refugees here. A Turkish passerby asks why we're focusing on these families scrounging by 
when there are organized government camps helping those who actually lost their homes. These families want to camp out close to their homes where they can use the bathroom. I watch another Syrian man sweeping outside his tent. He calls me over. This man, Yusuf Nassan, he called me over and he said, come film me, come take a picture of me cleaning up. The Turks say that we Syrians are dirty, but we're not. Our kids are around here, they're playing around here. We, we have to keep a, a clean place. Besides sweeping up, Nassan is the camp guard. He wears a security guard jacket he found somewhere and stays awake all night. There are rumors of looters amid the rubble and a sense of desperation. He says the other day his neighbor cried because someone stole diapers from his tent. Diapers. I wondered if it was a family from another tent. It's amazing all of these tents are all connected by the same, by like a spider web of of string. Ramis Jesse from another tent says, They're all connected, uh, otherwise they would just, you know, fall down. When you, when you tie them all together, it's going to be warmer inside the tents. Eight families connected by a web of string, hoping it won't be long before the aftershocks stop and they feel safe to go back home. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Gaziantep, Turkey. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, despite pleas from parents, Florida officials have voted to ban gender-affirming care for transgender youth. It's 819. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, let's go to the movies with a collection of our favorite conversations on films made in or about Boston. We trace a notorious tradition of Boston crime dramas from the friends of Eddie Coyle to The Departed. Grab your popcorn. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly cloudy today with a high near 58. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low around 32. Early tomorrow morning, we may see some snow that'll probably convert to rain. We'll have a high near 42. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston at 821. Coming to WBUR City Space next month, celebrate Pi Day with baker and author Lauren Coe. She's behind the best-selling cookbook, Pyometry. She'll be here March 14th. Get tickets at WBUR.org events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from EBSCO, offering clinical decision support resources and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed and drug information from Meritive. Learn more at dynamedx.com. And from ECMC Foundation, 
working to improve post-secondary and educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Several states are moving to ban gender-affirming medical care, such as puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones for transgender minors. Among the latest is Florida, the only state to impose such a ban by a vote of its medical boards. At a public meeting this month in Tallahassee, those board members were bombarded with chants of trans lives matter and shame from the audience. NPR's Melissa Block went to Florida to ask families and medical providers how the new rules will affect them. Liz is 13, a seventh grader who lives in Gainesville. Her full name legally changed last summer. Elizabeth Isabella Bostock. She's petite, with glasses and long, sandy blonde hair. Her bedroom is filled with stuffed animals. 120-ish. She loves theater and manga and anime video games. Liz came out as non-binary at age 11 and then as transgender after she turned 12. Her parents took her to a clinical psychologist, and she was given a formal diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Liz started seeing a medical team at a pediatric gender clinic, and last August, she started getting puberty blockers. She gets a shot every three months that essentially presses the pause button on male puberty. The goal for now is to keep her body from developing further in ways that don't align with her gender identity. It's been amazing. That's Liz's mom, Virginia Hamner, who says with gender-affirming care, she's seen her daughter light up. It's fun and exciting for her to be able to be exactly who she wants to be. But as for the future, well, that's cloudy. Under Florida's new rules that prohibit gender-affirming care for minors, new patients are banned entirely. For patients like Liz, who've started treatment, they are allowed to continue with what they have now. But it's not clear whether they can move on later to cross-sex hormones, for example. The rule's language is vague. For Liz, the fear of what's to come could mean a future outside Florida. If it gets too bad, I'm also already thinking about for high school going to a boarding school that isn't in Florida, which would honestly make things a lot easier. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has targeted LGBTQ rights and has made parental rights a running theme as he eyes a potential White House bid. The irony, says Virginia Hamner, is that her parental rights are being trampled. It's a gut punch. It's so frustrating to hear the rhetoric of parental rights be used to say kids shouldn't have access to treatment because we need to let them be kids. When it's like, you're right, and guess what? That's all I want for my kid. Dozens of the country's leading medical groups, including the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Medical Association, endorse gender-affirming care as time-tested and medically necessary. But Florida's Surgeon General, appointed by Governor DeSantis, calls it highly experimental, unproven, and risky. A member of the State Board of Medicine said that by banning gender-affirming care, they were acting to protect children from irreversible harm. Pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Kristen Dayton strongly disputes those claims. There is tons of evidence to back my assertion that this is safe and healthy for children. 
Dayton runs the Youth Gender Program at the University of Florida, and she worries about her patients, many of whom haven't yet started on blockers or hormones, and now won't be able to. People are feeling incredibly panicked and sad and distressed um, and coming to our office saying, what are we going to do when this passes? And, And frankly, we don't have the answers. The new rules haven't taken effect yet, but providers and advocates say they've already had a chilling impact. Several gender clinics in Florida have shut down. Under the new rule, violators could lose their medical license and face steep fines. Here's what a Tallahassee mom named Sandy heard from her transgender son's doctor, who explained that he will not prescribe anything beyond the son's current puberty blockers. One thing he has said several times is, I don't want to go to jail. To be clear, jail time is not a penalty under Florida's new rules, but many fear sanctions could be toughened, a fear that's shared by some families, which is why we agreed to use only Sandy's first name. There's just, you know, fear of not knowing what's coming in the future and how transgender families will be retaliated against. Just look at Texas, she says, where the state has investigated parents of trans kids for child abuse. Her son, River, that's his middle name, he's not out yet to all of their extended family, River started saying he was a boy and presenting as a boy when he was about three. Now he's in seventh grade. I am 12, almost 13. He loves rock climbing and math and fishing. I prefer, like, freshwater fishing. And he's a whiz with a Rubik's puzzle. Sandy says she's seen River flourish since he started on blockers, but she worries about what she calls the constant invalidation of who he is. There are some days that you look at everything going on and you are just paralyzed by fear of what's coming at your kid next. But you can't show that to your beautiful, wonderful trans kid. And it's exhausting. You know, it's so exhausting. Sandy's on regular calls with other trans families, many of whom are planning what she calls escape routes, planning to move out of Florida to a more trans-friendly state. She and her husband think about it too, maybe Oregon? The fact that you have to consider rehoming your family to have access to health care in the United States in 2023 is ridiculous. I just want my kid to be happy and healthy, and I just don't think that's a lot to ask. Trans advocates have vowed to fight Florida's new rules in court. Simone Chris, with Southern Legal Counsel, is keeping a close eye on states that want to ban gender-affirming care, not just for minors, but for adults, too. I don't think that this is going to slow down. I think that more and more states are going to ban, likely first for minors, and then, you know, try to move on to adults, which is why I think it's so critical that we stop them here in Florida. This work can be soul-crushing, she says, adding, it's hard not to feel like we're losing on a daily basis. All we can do, she says, is keep fighting. Melissa Block, NPR News, Gainesville. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, former President Jimmy Carter has entered home hospice care. We remember his contributions in and out of the White House. And millions of Americans are bracing for a decrease in federal food assistance next month. It's 829. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark. 
where chef demonstrations of Wolf appliances help you compare features and taste the results of ovens, cooktops, ranges, and more. ClarkLiving.com demo. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. He has since left Kyiv, but in his first visit to Ukraine since Russia's invasion almost one year ago, President Biden this morning made an unannounced visit to that nation's capital city. Standing with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, Biden pledged continued U.S. support, including half a billion dollars more in U.S. aid. NPR's Frank Langford is in Kyiv and describes the scene for Biden's visit. We saw this morning Biden strolling in the center of the city with the president, President Zelensky. He was in front of St. Michael's Golden Dome Monastery, and this is one of the most beautiful cathedrals in the entire country, uh, those beautiful golden domes. They're sharing it's a beautiful day here. And I was out last night, and I saw that they'd actually lit it up for the first time in a long, long time. So I think that was sort of an early welcome to the president. NPR's Frank Langford. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Turkey for a second day, having viewed scenes of earthquake devastation from a helicopter on Sunday. Today at a news conference with Turkey's foreign minister, Blinken focused on the war in Ukraine and thanked Turkey for its efforts to clear grain shipments blocked in Ukraine. The United States greatly values Turkey's contributions as a longstanding and active member of the NATO alliance. And we'll keep working together to strengthen and grow our alliance. Ukraine's food exports have dropped in the past two months, raising concerns about critical global food supplies. This is NPR News in Washington. North Korea has increased its threats and weapons tests in recent days, and NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports this comes as the U.S. and South Korea prepare for military exercises that simulate a North Korean nuclear attack. South Korea's military says the North fired two short-range ballistic missiles into waters off its east coast. Hours later, it fired two rounds of rocket artillery, which the North claims is capable of carrying tactical nuclear weapons. Pyongyang says those launches were in response to U.S. and South Korean air drills, including U.S. B-1B supersonic bombers. The air drills were in turn a response to North Korea's launch on Saturday of an intercontinental ballistic missile. State media quoted North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's sister Kim Yo-jong as saying that how often the North uses the Pacific Ocean as its firing range depends on the U.S.'s actions. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Around the world, in the U.S. and in his home state of Georgia, former President Jimmy Carter is being remembered as a man who gave back to his community long after his presidency. He is now in hospice care. In Plains, Georgia, the deacon of Maranatha Baptist Church, Jack, Zach Steele, says Carter has been a central figure in the church community. For the longest time, you know, 30-plus years, President Carter taught Sunday school a couple times a month. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today marks 20 years since the fire at the station nightclub in Rhode Island. A hundred people died when a pyrotechnic display during a concert started a fire, which led to a stampede. More than 200 people were hurt. A memorial mass was celebrated yesterday in Warwick to honor the victims. The tragedy led to changes in laws and codes involving nightclubs, including the use of automatic fire sprinklers.
Two Massachusetts health institutions are arguing over the sale of a specialty pharmacy. UMass Memorial Health sold the pharmacy to improve its finances. UMass Chan Medical School tells Mass Live it's owed a cut of the sale because it used to own the hospital and pharmacy. The school is asking for $40 million. The JFK Library and Museum in Dorchester will hold its 12th annual President's Day Festival today. Maria Quintero is the Outreach and Programs Manager at the library. She says this year's festival will focus on 1963, a key year in the fight for civil rights. We are looking at that theme of how democracy preserves through large shifts and changes and trying to remind people with this being the last year of John F. Kennedy's presidency, the importance of democracy withstanding any single person. The festival runs today from 11 to 3. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at VRTX.com. The Celtics' Jason Tatum scored an all-star game record 55 points last night. He led Team Giannis to victory over Team LeBron. The final was 184-175. to Boston coach Joe Mazzulla was the winning coach in the game. The Celtics' Jalen Brown had 35 points for the losing side. In women's hockey, the Boston Pride beat the Montreal Force 2-1 yesterday for their fifth straight win. This afternoon, the Bruins will host the Ottawa Senators. More clouds than sun today, but relatively warm. We'll have a high in the upper 50s. Tonight, still partly overcast and temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow, we may see snow before about 9 a.m. Then that'll turn to rain. We'll have a high right around 40. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden. Based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. This is NPR. In addition from NPR News, I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. President Biden and a slew of other federal officials offered prayers and words of comfort to former President Jimmy Carter after he chose to go into hospice care. His final moments will be spent at home with his family in Plains, Georgia. At 98 years old, Carter is America's oldest living president, and he has spent much of his life in service, work that earned him the Nobel Peace Prize. And that prize wasn't earned for his time as president, but the philanthropic causes he took up after he left public office. To look at Jimmy Carter's life in service, we're joined by Stanley Godbold. He's a retired professor of history, and he wrote two biographies on Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start with Jimmy Carter's time as president. How is his one term in office remembered? His reputation as a president has been going up. At the time he left office, uh, largely because of the campaign against Reagan in 1980 was fairly low. But as scholars dig into the documents and learn what really happened, the facts, the truth about what really happened, uh, his reputation as a president has been going up. And then, of course, presidents get uh, compared to their successes, too. 
So uh, Carter is beginning to get the respect uh, and credit he deserves for the many things he did as president. He, uh, he was consistent throughout his life, from governorship, presidency, post-presidency, in his drive to serve other people. Uh, he always said he wanted to do as much as he could for as many people as he could for as long as he could. And he sought power when he became governor of Georgia and later as president in order to use the power uh, to uh, serve the public good. If I could ask you, it's really the time after his presidency that redefined him in the public sphere, right? I mean, if you could talk about the work he and the Carter senator did post-presidency, that, that, those works of service. Uh, what he did post-presidency, he and Rosalind, they were equal partners. What, he did, what they did as post, in the post-presidency was exactly the same thing they did as president, except the times were different and he was free of, uh, of uh, politics. The theme of his presidency, he said, was peace and human rights. When they established the Carter Center, and later worked with Habitat for Humanity one week out of the year, mm -hmm. they were still promoting that theme of peace and human rights. Uh, he negotiated uh, settlement, civil war settlements mostly around the world. He provided health care uh, for underprivileged people, monitored elections in order to encourage democracy and freedom from dictatorships uh, almost every place in the world. And uh, late in his career, he even uh, saw the need for uh, working to make sure we had fair elections in the United States. Carter, biographer and history professor Stanley Godbold, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the invitation. Most federal pandemic assistance is coming to an end. That means millions who qualify for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, will be losing benefits. Here's NPR's Allison Aubrey. As the pandemic SNAP benefits are phased out, people will receive about $90 less each month on average. Some households will see a cut of up to $250 a month. Carlis Ferris is in her mid-60s. She's retired and lives in Columbus, Ohio. She says what started as pandemic relief went on to be inflation relief as groceries became much more expensive. For me personally, when they reduce these food stamps next month, it's going to be a lot harder. Social Security is her main source of income, and though there's been a cost-of-living adjustment, Ferris says it has not kept up with an increase in rent and utilities. The extra SNAP benefits have helped her eat well and preserve her Social Security for other expenses. But now she'll have to cut back. One strategy is to stock up on cheaper foods like crackers, bread, and rice, which she doesn't want to do because she knows it's not a healthy way to eat. The cheapest stuff is the less healthiest stuff. I learned that because I gained a whole lot of weight eating on the more cheaper stuff like the starches and the crackers. And, and now that I've gotten myself into a better weight size, I'm going to have to figure that out. More than 40 million people in the U.S. are helped out each month by SNAP. Some states have already ended pandemic benefits, and next month, remaining states and territories will do the same. Dorothy Rosenbaum is senior policy analyst at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. This is a change that will increase hardship for many individuals and families, especially given the modest amount of regular SNAP benefits, which are only about $6 per person per day on average. 
She says what may help cushion the blow is the cost of living increases built into SNAP and other adjustments to help the program keep up with inflation and help people afford healthy food. Even so, at the start of the pandemic, nearly 9.5 million older adults aged 50 and up were considered food insecure, meaning they sometimes struggle to afford all the food they need. This year, as lawmakers in Congress begin to reauthorize the Farm Bill, which includes review of the SNAP program, Rosenbaum says they have an opportunity to improve it. I think it's important for lawmakers to prioritize protecting and strengthening SNAP rather than proposing further reductions. At a time when, according to the CDC, many children don't eat fruits and vegetables every day but do consume plenty of sugary drinks, the Alliance to End Hunger is focused on ways to expand programs that promote healthy options. Here's Executive Director Eric Mitchell. Being able to use SNAP benefits at your local farmers markets, as well as, you know, creating what we call food pharmacies. So that way you can use your SNAP benefits to be able to purchase healthy foods to help improve your health care outcomes. He says there are far too many people struggling with food insecurity. For instance, at the Mid-Ohio Food Collective, the head of communication for the food bank says they've seen an alarming increase in need. Carlos Ferris says she'll rely on the food bank for some basics come next month. I think there's going to be a whole lot of people in need and a lot of people are going to have to go to the food banks. You have no other choice. With pandemic benefits ending, the Mid-Ohio Food Collective is bracing for more demand. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from the American Lung Association with support from Sanofi. They're working to raise awareness about RSV, the leading cause of hospitalizations in all babies under one. Learn more at lung.org RSV. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, the legal fight over a statewide abortion ban in Wisconsin has become the big issue in the primary election for the state Supreme Court, with candidates spending big money. Mostly overcast today in the mid to upper 50s, still overcast tonight in the low 30s. Snow early tomorrow morning, maybe, then rain. It'll be in the low 40s, partly sunny and low 40s on Wednesday. It's 50 degrees in Boston. Now, in business news, the record warmth we've had so far this winter, surprisingly, is not having a huge impact on ski resorts in southern New England. One of those resorts is Mount Southington in Connecticut. General Manager Jay Doherty says his place is used to warmer temperatures and keeps up with machine-made snow. Here in, like, southern New England, it's always a challenge. Um, and we've kind of built our snowmaking system around that. So while, yes, our snowmaking opportunities have been far and few between, uh, we've been able to maximize, you know, the amount of snow we put down in short periods of time. We checked this morning, and Mount Southington has all 14 of its trails open today. 
The Bay State Commons in downtown Westboro is getting some upgrades. The shopping center was just bought by Framingham-based Grossman Development Group for $11 million. Grossman says it plans to put in new sidewalks and landscaping and will also use the property to host community-focused events. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Pioneer Charter School of Science, providing students with a rigorous college prep academic curriculum with two campuses serving Greater Boston and the North Shore. Apply online at pioneercss.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And Amy Martinez, an election tomorrow in Wisconsin will fill a seat on the state Supreme Court and likely determine whether a ban on abortions stays in place. Now, if a liberal candidate wins the seat currently held by a retiring justice, the conservative majority on the bench would come to an end. It's a race that's drawn big campaign money for both sides. Here's Chuck Kornbach of member station WUWM in Milwaukee. If there's any doubt about the political fight over abortion rights in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, just listen to this ad from one of the four candidates, Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasewicz. I believe in a woman's freedom to make her own decision on abortion. It's time for a change. Protasewicz is considered one of the two liberals in the race. The other, Dane County Judge Everett Mitchell, says last summer's ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court, which reversed Roe v. Wade, has had the most adverse impact of any of the court decisions he's seen. It was one of the first times that I can remember in my own history that a right was reached into the lives of people and taken away. The overturning of Roe means almost all abortions are banned in Wisconsin under an 1849 state law. The only exception is to protect the life of the mother. Now that ban is at the center of a legal fight. While Republican state lawmakers support it, Wisconsin's Democratic governor and attorney general have filed a lawsuit challenging the ban. The case is expected to ultimately land before the Wisconsin Supreme Court. That prospect has put a spotlight on the election, with endorsements and money pouring in. The two conservative candidates say they will not comment on whether the 1849 law prohibiting abortion should stay in effect. But on a talk radio program, Waukesha County Judge Jennifer Duro said the Dobbs ruling overturning Roe was correct. I think it's really important for justices to have courage and to be able to look back at prior decisions, especially for a U.S. Supreme Court, and say, our prior decisions got it wrong. The other conservative candidate is a former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice. Daniel Kelly is trying to make a comeback after losing to a liberal candidate three years ago. During a forum, Kelly said if he had to consider the lawsuit challenging Wisconsin's abortion ban, he would take a narrow judicial approach. An actual justice would look at that and say, well, the people of Wisconsin have loaned the legislative authority to the legislature. And the Wisconsin legislature is controlled by Republicans who say, at the most, they would only make a limited change to the state abortion ban. For example, allowing abortions if rape or incest is involved in a pregnancy. The primary election is just step one. The two top vote-getters will face off in April. If, as predicted, it's one liberal and one conservative in the general election, campaign spending is expected to increase well into the millions as the battle over abortion policy in Wisconsin continues. That troubles former Wisconsin Justice Janine Geske, who now teaches at Marquette University Law School. 
we're losing the dignity and the impartiality of the court and turning into a partisan fight as though it's a legislative race. A race for the state Supreme Court that could become one of the most expensive in Wisconsin's history. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Quirmbach in Milwaukee. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how two new laws to boost American manufacturing may impact U.S. allies abroad. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu MBA. Before he was Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky was a comedic actor and entertainment mogul. Now he's a global symbol of democracy. People really recognize themselves in him, identify themselves with him, or he identifies himself with the people. How Ukraine's president transformed himself in the midst of a major war. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Upper 50s today under mostly overcast skies, low 30s tonight, and still partly cloudy. We may see some snow early tomorrow morning. By mid-morning, that should turn to rain. It'll be in the low 40s. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston at 851. You're up early on this holiday, so you deserve a little good music. That is some of what you'll hear at WBUR City Space next month for our Consalsa Night. It will feature Jose Maso, who has hosted Consalsa here on WBUR for nearly half a century. There will also be dancing and food. Join us March 10th. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. President Biden visits Ukraine. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot. Learn more about Snapshot at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Snapshot, not available in California, North Carolina, or from all agents. And by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. From Marketplace in New York, I'm Nova Safo in for David Brancaccio. President Biden visited Kyiv overnight for the first time since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine almost a year ago. Needless to say, this was a hugely symbolic visit. The president met with Ukraine's leader, Volodymyr Zelensky. And I'm here to show our unwavering support for the nation's independence, their sovereignty, and, uh, and territorial integrity. And uh, today, I hope we're going to have a chance to discuss on the United States uh, and our allies by keeping constant contact with and our partners can most effectively support you and your, your cause, Mr. President. President Biden announced a half a billion dollars in new aid for Ukraine. Japan this morning announced five and a half billion dollars in new aid as well. And Biden said additional sanctions to limit Russia's war machine are forthcoming. 
later this week. Meanwhile, we know the war in Ukraine has had economic ripple effects, especially in Europe. There have been widespread protests over high energy prices. In Moldova's capital, a pro-Russian opposition party called SOAR organized thousands in a demonstration. The country's government says there's a Russian plot to destabilize Moldova. BBC's BBC correspondent Lucy Williamson was at the protest. Protesters here all have the same story to tell. Energy prices are eating up half their pension or eating into the family food budget. The pro-Russian opposition is demanding the government pay people's energy bills, which have spiralled to more than 70% of household income. Russia cut gas supplies to Moldova last year, but protesters here don't blame Moscow for the price hikes. They blame their own government for alienating Russia with its pro-Western policies. Earlier this week, Moldova's president, Maya Sandu, said she'd seen intelligence suggesting that Russia was planning to send military-trained saboteurs into the country, disguised as civilians, to topple her pro-Western government. I asked one group of protesters whether they think Russia does want to infiltrate their country. Yes, let them come, they shout. We want them to come here. We want to be part of Russia. The war next door in Ukraine has increased the pressures on Moldova. Its population split between Romanian and Russian speakers, between those who support closer ties with the EU and those who want good relations with Moscow. That's Lucy Williamson with our editorial partner, the BBC. The numbers, U.S. markets are closed for President's Day. Trading in Europe is relatively muted this morning. In Asia, the Shanghai Composite Index rose 2% this morning. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. And by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. Two major bills Congress passed last year have been a source of tension with our European allies. The bills, the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act, will boost manufacturing in the U.S. European countries say the measures are unfair. For example, Ford has announced that it will lay off 10% of its European workforce to pay for more manufacturing jobs in the United States. Marketplace's Sabri Beneshor spoke with Charlotte Howard, executive editor of The Economist magazine. So there's lots of money that's going to be flowing to a number of different manufacturing industries in the coming years. If you are a company that is receiving funding from the Inflation Reduction Act or the CHIPS Act, how much of a boon is that going to actually be in the near future? It's a really big deal for certain sectors. So if you look at chip makers, for instance, the CHIPS Act, which was passed last year, has $52 billion. The Inflation Reduction Act has all kinds of money for different types of companies, both companies that are developing clean energy facilities, as well as companies that produce clean energy equipment, whether it's a solar panel or a wind turbine, you have money for manufacturers of electric cars. And importantly, in the Inflation Reduction Act, those subsidies aren't capped. So it really could be a huge amount of money that flows into some of these sectors. American manufacturing is it's very high end, it's very productive, but the scope of manufacturing has been in decline for a good while now. 
Do you think that this money is enough to reverse that overall trend? Well, it's interesting because if you talk about manufacturing and its trajectory over the past few decades, there is a narrative, and rightly so, that it's been on the decline because it has been on a decline as a share of the total economy. But actually, manufacturing output has risen. So certainly for chip making, over the past two years, you've seen $200 billion invested across 16 states. And that's going to be really transformative in those places. You think about Intel in Ohio or Micron in upstate New York, but it's not really going to change necessarily the overall structure of America's economy. It may, that's what the Biden administration hopes to achieve, but it's certainly not clear that it's a done deal. Well, it's also this money is premised on making America's economy greener. How's that going to happen? And will it happen? Well, if you think about how many times politicians have tried and failed to pass climate legislation, it's really notable that the Inflation Reduction Act went through. So in the past, basically, legislators tried to have sticks. So there'd be a cap and trade bill. People have debated a carbon tax. The Inflation Reduction Act includes no sticks. It's only carrots. So this law is kind of a complicated way to try to go about decarbonizing America, but it proved to be the only politically viable option that American politicians have yet come up with. And so I think on those terms, it's absolutely a victory for Democrats and a victory for those who were trying to advance some kind of climate legislation through Washington. Charlotte Howard is executive editor and New York bureau chief at The Economist magazine. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that interview by Sabri Beneshore in New York. I'm Novasafo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be mostly cloudy in upper 50s today, still cloudy tonight in the low 30s. There's a slight chance tomorrow may start with snow, but no accumulation is expected. Then rain likely in the morning and throughout the day. Temperatures will be in the low 40s. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.